Hey, you know what this is. It's the Feed the Ball podcast, Salon Edition, with Derek Duncan and Jim Urbina. I'm the golf course architecture editor at Golf Digest magazine, and Jim Urbina was one of the most proficient and respected golf course designers and builders in the business, right up to the point he began doing this podcast with me. That decision has proven to be career suicide, and Jim is now residing in the missing persons department, but that's my fault, not his. (laughs) All joking aside, I'm sure you were here to listen to us talk to James Duncan. James grew up in Denmark and came to the U.S. many moons ago to learn and practice the art of golf course design. He fell in early with some pretty strong company, then became a regular on Bill Coor and Ben Crenshaw's traveling troupe of builders and shapers working on projects like Old Sandwich, Bannon Trails, Shankun Bay in China, and many others. Now he's his own boss, consulting with clubs, conducting major renovations like the restoration of Robert Trent Jones' design of Dar es Salaam's Red Course in Morocco, and most importantly, developing his own course and club in conjunction with Corin Crenshaw. That course is called Brambles in Lake County in Northern California, and it's the topic of our discussion today with some beautiful reminiscing between James and Urbina mixed in. Please do us a favor and share this podcast with friends and people in the business, subscribe to it on your favorite podcast provider, and leave a rating and review while you're there. I'm on social media at Feed the Ball, and Jim and James are not, so follow me on behalf of them. Thank you very much. One quick production note. Somehow the settings on my microphone and recording got jacked, so my voice sounds like it's coming from the magic mirror of some creepy low-budget children's fairy tale cartoon from the 1970s. So, fair warning, it didn't affect Jim or James' voice, just mine. And with that, let's get into the talk with a prelude about making golf courses appear natural. And thank you for listening. You know, Derek, we always talk about golf courses and how they they either blend in or do not blend into the beauty and, and the surrounding topography. And if you don't mind, I'd, I'd like to read this quote from, from Robert Hunter. Do you mind? I don't mind. And he uses this, Derek, in, in, this, in this quote, he uses one from Plato and one from himself. So I'm going to read the one from Plato. <laughs> okay. And I quote, when we build golf courses... We are remodeling the face of nature. And it should be remembered that the greatest and fairest things are done by nature and the lesser by art, as Plato truly said. And then Robert Hunter goes on to say, and I quote, if there has been improvement in the art of constructing golf courses, it has been largely due to the willingness of the best architects to imitate humbly and lovingly what nature has placed before them. End quote. And that's from Robert Hunter, by the, the links from Robert Hunter. And, and I think, Derek, as I've spent the year of 2021 looking at golf courses, and I see what people have done, and, and I've seen the golf courses, some new and some that I haven't seen before, and some that I've seen many times over. It's the blending of nature and golf, which is what I am so impressed by the architects, Fred Lawrence at Desert Forest, I just think to myself, man, he took this beautiful piece of land and he placed a golf course upon it. And I know in your travels, you've seen the same thing. You've seen golf courses that, that just blend so seamlessly into nature. And I think we've headed back. We, I think we're headed back that way. I think we got away for it, from it for a while. And I think we're headed back that way. And I think, and I hope that from, from now on that, that 
the golf will blend in as as perfect as it can with the topography and the beauty surrounding it. Yeah, I've I've spent some time recently you know reading about this and even going back to the the transition of of golf from coastal Scotland into the interior of of the UK and how it took quite a while, you know, there was a big transition to, to move it from the links successfully into the Heathlands by the time they got to that area Southwest of London, where they finally found the right soils, the topography that worked for golf. And that's when they were able to really start to rediscover naturalism and, and making golf courses blend with nature. Because before that you golf courses didn't look very natural at all. And there was always that, that kind of competition between naturalism and, and unnaturalism that existed uh, really throughout the course of golf course architecture, but especially early on. And then finally, by the time you get to Harry Colt and, you know, his contemporaries and they they finally get to that really nice piece of uh, landscape with sandy soils and the Heather, they really wanted to make the golf courses emulate nature. And they found ways and McKinsey came out of that. And that's kind of takes McKinsey all, you could tra- really track Alistair McKinsey along this journey from, from that, uh, spirit uh, really working with Harry Colt and being exposed to, you know, the interior of England on good properties all the way to, you know, Northern California in 1932, by the time he, he passed away and that journey of, of really trying to create natural looking landscapes. And that said, that is a, that has often been an ideal, especially in the early part of the 20th century that, that making golf courses look natural and blend with nature was an ideal. And I don't know that, I think that I think then after that, after World War II and, and throughout the middle of the 20th century, almost every golf course architect expressed the desire or expressed the belief that they were creating natural looking golf courses, but they didn't feel natural. They didn't look natural. And I always suspect, I, I, I suspect, and I think there's studies, you know, study to be done here, is that there was a huge learning curve about the use of equipment and construction and machinery and, and how to best implement that. You go from starting off with using, you know, horses and hand labor and scrapers that created little small features that tended to create a featuring an, an architectural style and design that looked natural, it looked, you know, that it emulated the small movements of nature. Then you get into machinery, the machinery era, and they start off with really big equipment, graders and, and big bulldozers. And it's, it's really hard to make that stuff look natural, even though the architects of the time, you know, you read like Jeffrey Cornish writing in the 1950s about making golf courses look natural, but his golf courses, you know, they look homogenous. They didn't really express the, the nuance that you find in nature. And then you finally get to, you know, uh, this area where where we're kind of currently in, where you can take machinery and 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 all the available technology of construction, but better implement it to make golf courses that still look like they're natural and they blend into the landscape. So it's really been a learning curve. You started off from this one point with McKinsey and, and Colt, where naturalism and and this effort to blend golf into nature was really successful and, and artistically done, and and they were impassioned about it. And that I think that passion was always there. It, it's just we had had to, as an industry, find the way to make the technology and the construction equipment work toward that, finally come back to that starting point again. And Willie, when you talk about the equipment that was used, you are absolutely correct. The, the big dozers, the big scrapers, the big graders, uh, oh, they, they, they just glossed over the naturalness of what uh, uh, the topography that was given them. And now that we 
seek out these golf courses. And I believe it still began with the Sand Hills of, of Nebraska, Coor and Crenshaw's design. They went to the ends of the earth within the United States of America <laughs> and, and, and found this property that was perfect for golf. And they did very little with it. And that was, as you talk about, the evolution. And I hope that this, this, this latest trend from Sand Hills on continues to find the little nuances and build golf courses with the lightest, the slightest touch of, of architecture in it, but using the land that uh, is given them and, and looking for that special piece of land. I hope that continues for a long, long time. And that the, the big machines, as you talk about, uh, are, are uh, put aside uh, to make the little details around the greens, tees and bunkers, uh, the special part of art and blending uh, what Robert Hunter described as the perfect golf course and, and the perfect, beautiful surroundings that, that it is given to him. Yeah. There, in, in the first edition of the World Atlas of Golf, the book that was published in, I believe, 1976, there's a wonderful side-by-side uh, -side photo representation of, of uh, a site in Southern California. And it's, it's in a chapter on, you know, this, what we're talking about, how construction techniques had evolved through time when building a golf course. And it's a beautiful uh, prairie, that a meadow that rolls. It has some really graceful contours. And then the next photograph shows the site had been completely graded almost flat by these huge machines. And then the third photograph is the golf course that, that they built on top of that. And it just it eradicated any, any kind of nuance or any kind of a small, interesting feature that we would, would love to see be incorporated into a hole that would make that hole interesting uh, at, at the expense of, you know, making it uh, an industrial product, you know, net to, they've got the drainage and the irrigation in and everything's perfect, but it just like leveled the entire uh, landscape in order to achieve that goal of, of modern construction ability. Um, and yet when you look at it today, as you said, when you look at it today with the landscaping and the grass, it all kind of filled in those gaps and, and you see it as a, an oasis in, in, in and amongst the homes and streets and cityscapes. You do find that oasis. But when you're talking about what Robert Hunter talked about and what you said in the early days of, of architecture, uh, finding the little things and, and making them special makes the golf course unique. And so I'm loving where we're going with the architecture uh, today, maybe talking with Mr. Duncan and talking about what's important to, to the golf scape. Uh, I hope we can get that across to some of the listeners and maybe I can learn a little bit more about Mr. Duncan, James Duncan and what he's doing with Coo and Crenshaw team. Yeah. And, and one of the things we will talk about is, is the new project that he's uh really been a driver on he's working in conjunction with with uh bill corn ben crenshaw on brambles which is north of napa valley and it's one of the things that's interesting about the site jim and and is that it's a pretty modest site when you look at it it doesn't scream uh extravagance it doesn't scream excitement there's not a lot of drama to the property it's a very subtle property that kind of plays across the basin of this valley and flares up a little bit here and there and the design that that they're putting on it is subtle. I mean, it's just it's just doing what the land is, is asking of it. it. It's following natural contour, and the shaping will enhance parts of it. But you said something when we were there, and I, I think when we were 
done, you said something along, along the lines of, thank God somebody's doing something subtle. And, and, and you appreciated that ability to just to take that what was there naturally to listen to nature and to, to modify it only as needed to make an interesting golf hole. And that, that brambles is going to be really interesting to watch progress because they're not pumping it up. They're not turning land over. They're not building something as much as just laying a golf course on this really lovely, natural, subtle golf site. So it'll be interesting to hear James's, uh, you know, interpretation of that, if he's reading that the same as I am and, and what he has to say about the process of building what looks to be a very subtle, but beautiful. And, and I think it's going to be a very interesting golf course. Agreed. And I'm curious to see what the man has to say. Well, let's bring him on and talk to him. This is James Duncan. You're from Europe, and you're a fairly young man when you come to the United States. What was your exposure to American golf, and what did you th- what did you think of American golf when you experienced it in all of its all of its uh, its messiness? Yeah, Derek. You know, it it didn't seem messy at the time. It seemed. Um, just wonderful and um, exciting. And I mean, this is in the early nineties. I mean, there was just go-go times. It were, I think there were three or 400 golf courses being built each year in, in the States. I mean, it was, it was just the, a great time to um, launch into this sort of stuff. Um, so no, it was, it was just wonderful. I do remember standing in my dorm room um, in Copenhagen and looking at this map and saying, I, I think this is where I'm going and just kind of launching, <laughs> just kind of launching off. And it, it's, 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 it was a wonderful experience and um, haven't looked back. I mean, it just never went home. What was golf development like in Denmark at that time? It was more or less uh, non-existent. Um, this was at the time when sort of common usage of the internet was a fairly new thing. And, um, if I went to my university library and typed in golf, <clears throat> you might get like you know one or two results. It would be something like a National Golf Foundation directory or something. It was nothing of any great interest. Um, by contrast, when I came across, um, I mean, this very notion that you could go into a library and you can go six stacks deep into a basement and you could find a first edition of you know, golf course of the British Isles or Alison McKenzie's book or, you know, some obscure clubhouse reference. It was just amazing to me. It was like Disneyland. Um, so it was quite the contrast to what I had access to back in, back in Denmark. And you, you, you come into the United States with, with a situation where, as you mentioned before, at that time we're building – 100, 200, 300 new golf courses a year in the early 90s. I mean, that must have been almost a preposterous situation to observe from someone like you. It, it was, Derek. It was, again, you just couldn't even wrap your head around it. Um, I was just trying to get a pinky toe in the door. I was just trying to, you know, find the right people and, um, you know, try and just, again, connect with the people who are doing some interesting things. And um, um, I mean, I, I'm happy to tell you sort of the, the backstory, um, but I, this is back in the day when, you know, if you wrote someone a letter, you might actually get a, get a response. And um, I'd written to the USGA to ask them 
who to try and contact. And, and uh, Jim Snow and Kimberly Arusha uh, had written me back. I think particularly Jim Snow had written me back and recommended some places. And um, I wrote them all letters and, and got a few responses and came over to Ithaca, New York, where I met Jim. And, um, and that was really uh, the introduction. And Jim was, I think actually Gil was the first person I met sort of a golf name I met when I came over and then Jim and Tom very quickly thereafter. Um, Tom was um, doing a design uh, studio for the undergraduates and he and Jim would come and visit and critique the work. And I had been very generously invited by the head of the department uh, to sit in on the class. And um, Jim and I and Tom, we, we, we hit it off uh, pretty quickly and, you know, just went out for beers and, and just uh, shot the breeze. And then, um, you know, one thing led to another and next thing, you know, I'm go- I mean, I knew Derek, I knew nothing. I had no clue. I had enthusiasm and I had this engineering background, but beyond that, I had no, I, I couldn't start a tractor. I mean, I'd never done anything construction wise, a couple little things where I kind of monitored, um, but I think meeting Jim and Tom and, uh, and Gil, and this is, by the way, I mean, Jim was a household name, but, you know, Tom and, and Gil were, yeah, everybody knew Jim at that time. they were, who, who, who they, who they are now. Uh, so again, they just had raw enthusiasm and uh, Jim might actually be the one who had the most experience, uh, of, of any of us. And, um, and we bumble along. I don't know if Jimmy remember our trip. We, we went up to Northern Scotland and, just had a great time. We went up to Brora and Galsby and Dornock and we played in the, uh, the Barfield cup. Remember that we played in that uh, Ryder cup format. It was a pretty, it was just a great, it was really sort of a, that's what it's all about. This sort of authentic golf in the Scottish Highlands with people who love the game and have a passion for golf architecture. I mean, it doesn't get much better than that. So that was really the beginning. And for me, Derek, the beginning to, uh, of, of learning about Mr. James Duncan, a neophyte in the, in the world of golf course architecture and construction. But as he said, the energy that he gave off, the willingness to learn, the, um, the simplicity in which he approached uh, the architecture and what he was trying to gain from it and spending those two or three wonderful days in the northern part of, of Scotland, uh, I can't tell you how important it was for me and my continuing education, but to watch uh, James Duncan uh, beat around the golf, co- golf course at, at Royal Dornick. Uh, I think I was on, your, on the other team. James, you represented the, the British. I represented the American team. And, uh, <laughs> it was nothing but laughs, Derek, for like two days straight. And so I knew that I would that I would appreciate uh, the one James Duncan and, and his love of architecture and his, his willingness to laugh, his willingness to laugh and have fun as part of that that learning experience. I think when you play golf with with that crew, you have to laugh. You have to know how to laugh. <laughs> It was a great trip, Derek. It really was. And as Jim said, it was only a few days, but some of those trips just stay with you. And, um, and then when you subsequently learn about the history and I mean, everybody, I mean, John Sutherland, 
in Dorlock who had such a huge and largely sort of unheralded um, influence on golf. Um, and you go to those places and then you think back on uh, where you were at what time and just how exciting and special it was and how fortunate you were to, to be in that position. And Tom, I mean, bless him. I mean, he has some great one-liners. And I remember we were up in, I think it was in Galsby, and there was a Chinese restaurant. And the name of the restaurant was Chinese Restaurant. And Tom goes, <laughs> whenever the name of the restaurant is Chinese Restaurant, just be a little bit careful about what you're about to eat. And I think he makes a good point. <laughs> well, Derek, it was the only thing open at 1130 at night. We had just finished playing uh, Brora. And it was the only thing open. And it was still light outside. And I figured, well, <laughs> if we haven't eaten all day, I think maybe it's time. <laughs> and I go into the restaurant, not that the listeners care, but I go into the restaurant to open my mouth and order the food. And the two young girls in the restaurant kept laughing at my accent and they couldn't take the order <laughs> until their dad came out and said, apologize to the two girls for laughing at my accent. Cause nobody like me had been that far North. They never, they never heard Southern Colorado before. <laughs> <laughs> never heard Southern Colorado. Couldn't take my order. The gentleman came out from behind the cook uh, behind the, the stove and took my order, took our order. And we sat on the water's edge at almost midnight and it's still light outside, wondering if we could get one more round of golf in. Oh, <laughs> incredible. Good day. It actually sounds, sounds pretty good. good. It was incredible. Well, if we, Jim, if we are segueing into uh, food stories, I got, I got to tell one about uh, Jim down in, in North Berwick. Uh, this is a, this is quite a few years later and, and uh, I'm over there. My sister lives in North Berwick and I have a long history of going there. And I love the place about as much as anywhere. And uh, Jim uh, was traveling through and we were going to have dinner and we're going to this bistro and Jim's going to have a cheeseburger, a cheeseburger with some fries. And I don't know it's if the North, North Berwick specialty, right? Well, I don't know if the listeners know this, but Jim <laughs> is, uh, what's a reasonable a description? It can be a little p on the picky side when it comes to ordering. <laughs> so he, he goes, you know, could I get, would you mind, toasting the bun a little bit light and maybe can I get the lettuce on the side and hold the mayo? And the guy just looks at him like, uh, we make a cheeseburger. You can either have it or you can not have it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take the cheeseburger. Damn it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, thank you. Thank you. So you remember that Jim. <laughs> I do. And, and sadly it still goes on today, but, uh, what James Duncan is talking about, Derek, and and what I fondly hold close to my heart is the travels that you have to do and you have to go see the places like North Berwick and you have to go to the top end of Scotland and, and, and the days that you spend with people like James Duncan on world-class golf courses like that, learning all day long, if I could tell anybody wanting to get in the business today that the study of golden age design and the study of Lynx golf, where it came from is so important so that you understand when you get that special piece of property, what to do with it. But as James Duncan said, and what we've been laughing about for the last five minutes is that at the end of the day, you're still functioning. You're still trying to, 
to navigate for the next day's activities. And the offshoot is the funny times you spend away from the golf course, which are just as important. I, I would just add to that, Jim. I think for you and for, for you, for you and me, this idea of traveling to see the best golf courses and really trying to get it in your, in your, under your feet and in your bones is, is irreplaceable. I mean, that's for, for us, that's, you just can't not do that if you want to really understand what it's all about. I am fascinated by how there are people, and I, I work with some of them who haven't done that and they totally get it. They totally get what this ground feels like and what it looks like. And they've, they've never been to those places. Uh, I, I still can't, I don't know how they do it, but um, there, there is a way to communicate it um, through feel and through description and through pictures. Uh, clearly there must be because some of these guys are as good as anyone I've seen and, and they haven't necessarily made those uh, trips that you and I have made. Mm -hmm. well, Jim, you, you talked about how, how when you arrived in America, you kind of fell right in with, with a Jim Urbina and a Tom Doak and a Gail Hans. That's a pretty fortuitous group looking back on it to have met initially. And I'm sure your interactions with them and your travels probably had a pretty big impact on how you view golf course design today. How much, where, were, where was your mind and your outlook on design at that time when you, when you came to America and met these guys versus where it is now? Derek, I mean, unbelievably good luck and, and good timing. Um, again, you just don't know how lucky you are in the moment. Um, but yeah, I mean, you couldn't pick three better guys to, to connect with early on. And then to have a chance to uh, go and work with Jim and Tom uh, was great. My mind at the time was really very, uh, it was very simplistic. Try to get, try to graduate, try to get a job. I mean, it was pretty simple. Try to find some opportunities to learn. Um, just try and join the, join the circus. I mean, just go on the road show, learn as much as you can, which uh, is another thing that, you know, I know Jim and I could talk about this for, for a long time. This, on the one hand, this idea of going on the road, joining the show, immersing yourself in design and construction, being around golf geeks, golf architecture people all day, every day is just fabulous. But at the same time, it's also extraordinarily limiting. Uh, and as, as you have to realize at some point, okay, it's just a bunker and it's just a fairway line. Or I mean, you, you gotta, you know, you can go down a rabbit, a deep, deep rabbit hole and that um, it's just difficult to gain perspective from. But we've always, I mean, I know, I mean, Jim works as hard at this stuff as, uh, as anyone. Um, I mean, I've been lucky to Tom as well, Gil, I mean, and, you know, Cora Crenshaw, who I've had the great fortune to spend some time with as well. I mean, these guys, they get after it as much as anybody. But I think the secret source is this balancing act between pursuing that with great vigor and great enthusiasm, but at the same time, getting some perspective, getting some influences from outside your little world, because I think to me, at least that's the only way you can really grow and, and get a greater understanding of what you're trying to achieve in the first place. Yeah. And Jim, Jim's going to jump in here in a minute, but I wanted to ask you, James, from your perspective, I mean, you, you worked with, with Tom and then uh, with, with Jim and Bruce Hebner and those guys for a while. And then you began a long relationship, as you mentioned with Corin Crenshaw. What did you think that you brought to the field that made you an attractive person for, for them to want to work with. And then Jim can, can tell, give his perspective on it. 
Yeah, it, it still remains a mystery to me, uh, Derek. No, I mean, all kidding aside, I had some technical uh, skills. I, I did have an, an engineering degree. I could, you know, I could read grading plans. I could <clears throat> follow a construction schedule. Like, but I think in sort of more abstract um, terms, I do have an appreciation for history. Um, I do have an appreciation for design. I think even growing up in Denmark, I think it's hard um, to not have some sense of, of design. Uh, you're just you're immersed in it. Um, but I think those those two, and again, just this sort of raw enthusiasm for golf and golf history and just being a small part of that, I think that was attractive to someone like Jim and certainly someone like Tom, um, who is you know, as enthusiastic as they come. And for me, Derek, when I, in the field, out on, on the site when you're building golf courses and you're designing this golf course and, and you're putting all your heart and soul into it, Sometimes you don't have the confidence to, to finish out a, a shape of a green or a bunker or you do something and, and you, you want somebody else's opinion. The, the, the hardest thing to ask somebody, and it's kind of scary to ask them because you don't know what's going to come out of, your, out of their mouth is, <laughs> stand with somebody like, like uh, James Duncan and say, what do you think? And... Those, those words, what do you think? What do you see that I have done? What could you do to make it better? Those were the things I was never afraid to ask James Duncan. What do you think? What's your opinion? And you want somebody that's going to give you a solid response, uh, something that you're not just saying whatever comes off the top of your head to make it sound like you agree with me or disagree with me disagree with me the question what do you think happens every day a hundred times a day in the development and the design and construction of the golf course you're get, you're asking for feedback from shapers from the crew from everybody the owners and i was never afraid to ask james duncan what do you think because i knew what was going to come out of his mouth was solid with some background, an observation, not just agreeing with me or disagreeing with me, solid information that I could move forward with in the design. What do you think? And that was what James Duncan was very good at. Well, that's, that's very kind, Jim. Thank you. That was, was very, and again, just to be in a situation where you are being asked these questions, Derek, that's not necessarily the norm. Um, there's a lot of um, pecking order in the industry. A lot of um, firms, a lot of people do things differently from the way Jim does it, which is more of an inclusive, um, curious uh, way of doing things. Um, you don't question, you know, the, the architect or the architect's associate if you're the glorified drainage grunt, which is basically um, what I was. Um, so it's, it's a philosophy. It's, it's a way of uh, going about uh, doing things. Um, and it's funny, Jim, just listening to you talk about it, it, it does take me back to then. And it, I, I can say with confidence, I, I really didn't know much at all. But the little I did know was based on having read the books and having studied and then sort of a bit of the theory and the, the principles of architecture. And I think, I think that's, there is some value in that, in being out there in the field and it's dusty and hot and you're running out of diesel and someone's yelling at you or your behind. 
to sort of remain rooted in, well, what are, what are we trying to achieve here in the first place? And should that, does that sort of fit together? And from a golfing point of view, is that corridor, I mean, Tom used to talk about it, <clears throat> about these, the entrance to the green and the, the, the dimensions and exactly the right size and shape. So I think the theoretical part of it, it does have significant application. Um, but of course, you can also go overboard and, and get, get too tied up in, in the theoretical part. And then the, the secret source there is to know when to break the rules and when it's okay for it to be a little different from what ordinarily you might, you might do. But it's, again, back to your comments, Jim, I think that way of doing things, that way of thinking about it, um, that's what separates you and those you've worked with for the last 30 years from sort of the, 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 the normal ways of doing things. And Derek, I can tell you, this is the part that people don't understand in the evolution of the golf course design from the intent, the routing, the layout, People don't see that this interaction happens every day from sun up to sundown. What do you think? Are we in, are we headed in the right direction? Are we applying the principles that we set out to do? Uh, James Duncan has set out a principle of things that he wants to do. Bill Coor and Ben Crenshaw on this site in California have set out a plan. And how do we get this plan put upon the land and decisions are made every day, 10, 20, 30 decisions that people never understand goes on. And yet it's the simple three words, what do you think? Or as Pete Dye used to put his hand on my shoulder and say, what were you thinking here? Maybe <laughs> sarcastically. <laughs> what the Maybe hell were you thinking? <laughs> what the hell were you thinking here? But it was still that interaction. And James and I have talked about this, and, and, I, and I, I want to go down this point for just a second. It's the people that surround you on the property that make these golf courses special. And I think, and I want James to at least explain, in his opinion, how important these people that are around him on this site make his site special. Yeah, again, it's just fascinating to listen to you uh, talk about these things, Jim, because it does make me think about um, sort of the spectrum and uh, where uh, personally I, I, I fall on the spectrum. And, and you mentioned Pete Dye. Uh, his reputation was that, you know, he was sort of out there freewheeling and everybody gets input and everybody can just go make some stuff up. But you know, and uh, I would add Corey Crenshaw to that mix, um, Tom as well. You, th th there's a there's a an editor in chief. There, there's a direction here. There's a. It's not just like this random people out there just smashing around aimlessly. It's a very carefully choreographed dance where the appearance may be that it's all sort of random, but there's a very it's, it's going in a certain direction, as you point out. So I think that is as this idea that it's that there is a direction and everybody understands what the goals are. I think that is as important as this idea that there is creative license. And and within that overall goal and direction, you can play around over here and try something and don't be afraid to mess up or don't be afraid to do something that's a little edgy. But it has to be done 
under sort of an overarching direction and a goal um, that, uh, again, it looks like, oh, yeah, anybody can go out there and just, oh, just put the hole over there and, and oh, just put the bunker over there. Well, it's actually very carefully um, put together and, and crafted. Uh, so to your question, Jim, about the people, I, the guys I work with, and they are mostly guys, um, it's, it's nice that there are some people, some women in, in, in the industry, not, not too many. The, the, the things I try and impart are typically, one is stay on script. You know, here's what we're trying to do. Again, yes, you can, there's some license here, but from it, from an architect's point of view or from a developer's point of view, if it's just, if there's no sense of what's going on, it's very hard to, um, it's just very hard to orchestrate. So stay on script is one that I use a lot. Maybe the guys will say maybe too much, but I think it has value. It has value that you've thought about what your contribution is. You've thought about what it is you're being asked to do, how that fits into the scheme of things, whether it's managing your time, managing the equipment, managing, again, your place in the whole sequence of events that takes place, uh, that to me has tremendous value. Uh, respecting other people's contributions, I mean, that to me is huge. If you get people out there who just they don't care about anybody else, they think everything they do is great and everybody, what everybody else does is not worth considering, I don't care how good you are, that's just not the right spirit. The spirit is this being respectful of other people's contributions. Sometimes you're going to have some terribly bad ideas. That's okay, too, and to not to belittle those, uh, to try and be inclusive. So I think those two, to me, creatively, sure, you need to have some creative talent. Um, but some of that stuff, a lot of that stuff, I think, can be taught. Um, you, can be, you can be taught the craft of building golf courses. There's a technical side about you know, drain, water runs downhill and irrigation has to go in. There's, certain, there's a certain sequence. Uh, but that the, the respect for other people and the respect for the project, for the resources, being a team player, I mean, to me, that's huge, Jim, to, that you feel like and you want to be part of this team effort. Uh, that's, a, that's a big one as well. Um, and then look at the creative stuff. Again, that's confidence. There, there's um, learning from those you work with. You have to have the confidence to make a move. You can be parallel. If you, if you don't say, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do, well, you're going to, not going to do anything. Um, but then it's up to the architect and the team that sort of runs the, the thing to, again, have that creative, have those creative juices flow in a way that is, is, is purposeful and, and move the project uh, forward. James, you're in Northern California right now. You're working on Brambles. You've spent a lot of your career working on great sites for great architects and great teams. How would you describe Brambles? Paint a picture for the listeners about what, what that site is and, and maybe what it reminds you of or what it means to you, why you chose it. Yeah, thanks for even uh, bringing that up, uh, Derek. It's very sort of immodestly, uh, yes, it is It is my little baby out here, Um I mean, you want to talk about something that I've been working on since I was since I was a boy. Uh, I can remember sketching clubhouses, you know, when I was a teenager, and just this idea that this or this ideal project, something that sort of captures the simplicity and the essence of 
golf the way that I love it and have known it. Um, and I'm sure there are some references there. When I was in Copenhagen, I had a chance to go out fairly frequently uh, to play, you know, a Copenhagen golf club. And it's this, I mean, there's no rakes in the bunkers. It was a deer park uh, where they had built a golf course in the little corner of it. Uh, it was very, very simple. Um, the golf courses in Denmark generally were very simple. There was there were no bells, no whistles. It was just a very simple, you know, walking out of the landscape. And then later on, I was exposed to the the ancient courses and the original courses, which were very different, but again had that just an an, an extension of nature. Uh, so I think those are the two uh, cultural references and um, sort of ideological references I had a little bit of reading about, you know, Tom Simpson talking about how everybody loves their home course and it may not be the flashiest course you've ever seen, but the, fam the familiar familiarity, maybe it's easy to get to, or maybe the lunch is good or you like hang out with your buddies, all that stuff I think goes into the pot when you, at some point in your life, I was in my mid forties at the time and I started seriously thinking about, okay, if, if we get one chance to do this before it's all too late, you know, we're all on the walkers or wheelchairs um, and, and just not physically able to do it and we run out of time, if we, if we have one chance to do it uh, before that happens, what would it look like? Where would we do it? Who would you try to get involved? And uh, I was living in, in the Bay Area, a few hours south of here at the time. And we'd been there, my wife and I had been there for, for, for a long time, and we felt like we were going to be here for a while. And it was a place that was, you know, you had the Pebble Beaches and the Cypresses and San Francisco Golf Club, um, Olympic Club. You had some classic, historic, uh, revered, incredible places to play golf. But if you started looking around San Francisco and the Bay Area and you asked yourself, you know, where could you add something to the golf scene? Where is there maybe a bit of a shortcoming of interesting places to play golf? It became apparent that the, the wine country, there's really not that much good golf up in the wine country. Um, and for, for obvious reasons, everybody's clamoring for the same resources. The land is very expensive. There's, everybody's trying to get the water to grow grapes. Everybody's trying to grow grapes. Um, there's a reason why you can't just take a couple hundred acres in, say, Napa Valley and build a golf course. The county would not permit it. Uh, it would be tremendously expensive. But the wine country, um, and, and that's why there weren't too, any particularly good golf course in the area. There's Mayakama, which is just over the – it's over towards um, – it's in, well, it's in Sonoma County, a little bit west of us. Uh, there are some older clubs that are sort of nestled in the valley. They're, they're, they're very nice, but they're not the kind of golf that was a reflection of what I – made reference to earlier. But then where we are, we're just up above uh, Napa County and, and we're in a, in a county where um, there, there's an interest in, in good projects. There's interest in land stewardship. There are some big ranches up here. Um, there's an interest in using the land in a way that it connects with the community. And you, I mean, you talk about a thing that relates to golf using a piece of land in a way that connects with the community. I mean, that's what it was all about uh, in the old days. So 
that's what led to this location. You could you could get land in a location where there was an interest in building a golf course. You could get it relatively inexpensively. You could find a piece of property that had the right zoning, had the right soils, and had there's an abundance of water up here. So there's a way to kind of fit this thing together. Um, and that led us to where we are and uh, and what we're trying to do. It, this is not going to be Bandon Dunes. It's not going to be Pebble Beach. It's this very simple, easy to walk, communing in nature. Go out there, take your dogs, go out and wave at the sheep. You know, it's just a simple stroll in the countryside uh, to play the kind of golf that I happen to really enjoy. Uh, and, I, and I love going to, you know, you take a pick, Valley Bunyan or some of the, you know, there's dramatic, huge, big cascading sand dunes. But I also really enjoy Copenhagen Golf Club, Garden City Golf Club. I mean, you could take a whole Woking. I mean, you could, there's a whole raft of courses that are not as dramatic. But if you if you wanted to play a few times and get familiar with the golf course and love it more and more as you play it, North Berwick is another one. That's the kind of golf that, I am attracted to, and that's what we're trying to do. So thanks again for asking. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Jim, what, what were your impressions of the Bramble site? Well, you know, I, me and my, and my uh, not afraid to say what I'm thinking, I called, Jim, I called James Duncan out on this one piece of the land where it had these little rivulets. I believe it's hole number seven. And, and, and I said, this – these weren't here, James Duncan. There's no way. And he says, yes, they were. And, and we, we got out and, and we cr- walked across these rivulets, uh, these little indentations in the soil, and this beautiful green side had been set up on seven. But when you stood out on the tee, you had this wide open uh, launch, uh, these launch angles that you could go at, at, at any different direction. But when you got to the green – the simplicity of the rivulets as they tied into the green site, it was like too perfect. It was, I couldn't believe it had happened. And so it, the simple things, Derek, the simple things, I told you, it's the simple things that Coo and Crenshaw seek out that James Duncan knows about, that the shapers know not to touch. It's those little things that make the Coo and Crenshaw designs so unique and so different. And I called James out on it. I said, you guys built mm-hmm. these things. And, and he said, no, we didn't touch them. We, we used them. And that's the beauty of Brambles is that it used the little, little things in its routing and its presentation that made it so unique. And I shook my head and I said, these guys just keep coming up with things that are so much different than anybody else. And it's because you walk the land and you find what's applicable and how to use it. And then you have people like me say, that wasn't there. Mm-hmm. That's too perfect. And, and, you know, James and I are fighting on the seventh green. He's saying it was there. I swear, I swear to you. And yes, I go back and look at the original Togo map and sure enough, it was there. It's the little things. It's the simplicity of the golf. And that's what I think, James and Coor and Crenshaw are so good at. It's the little things. We don't need fountains and waterfalls, the little things. 
You know, Derek, back to your question about the, the property and seeking out. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that it's not a, a property that in its raw state you would you would tend to say, oh, let's go build a golf course over there. I mean, it looks just like a flat field. So unless you're trying to build that kind of golf course to begin with, you're not going to be drawn to that piece of property. I think typically you would be looking for something, you know, more hills, maybe more trees. But again, if the goal is to sort of get back to the wellspring uh, and you think about an, where could you find a Northern California version of some walkable ground where those little things that Jim makes reference to, that they have a meaningful impact. You build something that's like waist high out in the field. Well, that's really cool. If you build something waist high on a hilly property, it just looks kind of goofy or it just disappears. So you have to be looking for walkable land that then, oh, by the way, when you mow it out, there's these beautiful little indentations and rivulets and old roads. I mean, there's these old roads that we never knew you were in there that had been just beaten in over the decades. And then once you mow it down, it's like, oh, that's really cool. There's an old road in the middle of the first fairway. Um, so again, I, I think it goes back to this idea that you really clearly establish what are the goals? What are you trying to achieve in the first place? And then that drives you towards a certain type of property. Yeah, and that property though, it looks benign. It looks neutered from afar. You you're coming on the highway. You, yeah, you're right. You're you're almost like, is there even room for 18 holes out there? You, you can't tell. But you get on the property, and one of the greatest assets is, you know, you it's it's you know there is grass right now. There there's prairie grass, so you can't see all the little contours that's underneath that. But it is crisscrossed with these little barrancas and, and waterways and these little stream beds and they they're they go in different directions and some are straight like on nine it runs hard against the left side of the fairway it's a straight line but in other places like in front of the seventh green as jim says it's just this myriad it looks like a like a capillary system of these little tiny humps and hollows that will be grass i'm assuming and, and used as a as a feature so the the property does have incredible character to it even though it looks fairly very neutral from afar yeah i'm okay with neutral i'm Absolutely. okay with neutral with well, character. how, how different talk about the routing process uh, what how long did it take or what were the discussions that you and bill had when you're walking the property and trying to find out how to maximize all these very subtle features well, so anyone who knows uh, Bill Kaur or, or Ben Crenshaw or, or both of them or the firm will, will I think, find this um, or recognize this, that, you know, for years, Bill was trying to say, you know, you, you don't need us. You just, you know what you're doing. You should just go out there and do <laughs> it. And, you know, you have a good group of people around you and you'll be just fine. You don't need us. And like, Bill. What are you talking about? You know, the, we need you. Please, please, please be involved <laughs> in this. And, and also personally, we've worked together for you know, almost 25 years. If we couldn't figure out a way to work together and s complement each other, you know, I would be on the other side of the table. I'm sort of on the developer side on the permits and you know, funding and dealing with all that stuff. Um, and I'm, but I'm still happy to render an opinion on the golf course design. That really isn't that different from how we used to work together. It was clear that Bill and Ben were the editors in chief. The rest of us could, we would be asked for an opinion. Well, what do you think about this hole? What do you think about that? Or 
have you looked at a tea over there? But it wasn't like we were trying to say, hey, Bill, come. I found a tea. I think you should come here. This is where you should put the hole. It, that was never how, how it worked. So it's a very familiar uh, routine, very comfortable. Um, so we eventually persuaded uh, Bill and Ben to, uh, to participate, uh, which may be our highest uh, achievement uh, uh, doing that, which was all good fun. I mean, it was all a great fun. And I can't tell you just how thrilled we are to, to have them involved. In fact, Ben's going to be here this week, and um, we just have such a good time. Um, so in terms of process, it really wasn't that different from how we would sometimes do it. We would go, you know, go look at a property either together or separately and maybe give some feedback to the owner. Is this suitable? And what do you have out there? Is, is, is there even potential here? It was kind of a version of that, Derek, where we would look for the most interesting parts and try to string them together. Where would you start? Where would you finish? We'd have a few different options. And, and Bill, again, to his unending credit, went along with this, spent a considerable amount of time with us out there before we even had the beginnings of any sort of a commercial understanding of how this is all going to uh, work together. Uh, and I just remember the only thing I promised uh, my little group of investors and friends was, look, you know, we're probably going to be finding more or less the same ground to use. But once Bill and Ben get really formally involved and they start sinking their teeth into this, I promise you it'll be different from what I had and it'll be better than what I had. <laughs> and sure enough, I mean, Bill, again, I am biased. I've spent so much time by his side. He just sees things that the rest of us don't, don't see. Well, you, know, you take 10 big steps over here, you can play in there. Yeah, of course. I just didn't see it. I could have walked there a hundred times. I never would have seen it. Um, so that's how, that's how it evolved. And, um, I would say we're, we're still refining a little bit. You can you know, build a T over here or scoot this thing over a little bit, but the framework is <clears throat> more or less in place. You know, we're putting in irrigation right now. We'll start grassing in the next, um, two or three weeks. So it's all, it's all coming together. One of the things James and, and Derek that is sometimes not discussed fully enough and we don't have enough time to do it. But when you talk about routings and you talk about how brambles went up into the, just the little hillsides, uh, the beautiful hillsides, and then came out into the, into the flatlands as, as we describe it with a lot of character. And then it kind of sneaks back up into the hillsides. How long did it take James to get that, perfect synergy of when to be down in the flats and the when to be up in the hills and when to come back out. How long did it take for Coor and Crenshaw and yourself to, to, to find that happy medium? Uh, that, I mean, you want to talk about uh, from an architectural point of view, that is, I think that's one of the key questions. Um, it takes me back, and uh, there's a short answer to that, and there's a longer answer. If you'll indulge me, I'll kind of go with the longer, longer answer. It takes me back to uh, we went over to Western Ireland, uh, Bill and I, uh, probably half a dozen trips about 15 years ago, and um, looked at a property over there, and it had the huge big dunes, and then it had the medium-sized dunes and it had like the we called the independent guy there was an independent guy out in the field and then there were the dune slacks flat as a pancake 
But then you play in some little rumple ground, sort of buy a dune. You had a dune slack on one side. You'd play this little rumple ground out to the medium-sized independent guy. And then off in the distance, there were these 200, 300-foot-high sand dunes. And I just remember us just registering that it was the combination of the elements. You didn't want all of it to be dune slacks. You didn't want all of it to be three big dunes. You didn't want all of it to be independent guys. It was the combination of the various pieces that made the whole composition. So that's exactly what you're getting at with the routing at Brambles, where I love four and five up there in the little tree corner, and you play up and over, you get up on the high ground. But I'm also just thrilled that not every hole is like that. Eight and nine out there on the end, nine is flat as a pancake, but it's by a runway, so it just kind of fits, and it's a bit of a reprieve. Uh, and it's got enough going on without anything additional that needed. And then, you, as you say, you play along, you get back up into the trees, you come in, and you sort of finish over there by 15, 16, and, 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 and 17 also has some trees and some elevation. So you're, at, you're, ex you're absolutely right. It was just how do you orchestrate that? How do you fit all that stuff together? Uh, and it took us a while. I mean, you know how it is. I mean, we... We had a routing with 17 holes. We had one with 20, and you know, and then eventually it just all sort of clicks. We we were looking at, would you put the clubhouse somewhere else? Or, but then that tied into some something with sun angles and wind angles, and you know, we get this blinding sun where you just can't play into the morning sun. You can't really play into the evening sun. So it had to sort of, you know, some things there to think about and lodging. We had to think about where we want to put lodging, and um, but then. As you know, it's like when you've got the puzzle piece on the table and you finally say, oh, well, there's the piece of sky I was missing. And you just click it in. It's like, oh, well, that, any idiot could see that this is how you should do it. Any idiot. And yeah. yet it's so hard to get to that final puzzle piece. Right. But you're right. We, we worked hard on that uh, to try and get it where, you know, the, it all ebbs and flows and – you don't have too many holes in the same direction. and But but that's another, I mean, there are too many holes in different directions. I mean, that's sort of a sort of simplistic way of thinking about it. But what you're talking about, I think, is really, now you're getting into the interesting stuff of and the using the property and its different yeah. moods and different characteristics uh, in and, different ways. And for the whole time we were going around that property, I was thinking, how, what, how could they have done it differently to come in and out of those California hillsides? and go down to the flats. And it just seemed, we didn't play it. It's not ready to play. But it seemed like in our tour that it was just about right. I can hardly wait to get back there to experience it in all its glory because it just felt right. Perfect time up in the hills, perfect time down in the flats. The The flats didn't overpower the hills. The green sites didn't, weren't, weren't trying to do... It was just freaking perfect. And I'm thinking, how long did it take him to get that? And it seems like, oh, we just put the last puzzle piece in, no problem. But I knew it was much harder than that. It's one of those properties that's interesting, and you don't see them often, especially with so little new development. But it is it applies to um, any of the coastal links. Uh, it applies to certain golf courses. But what you, what you do is you stand in one part of this golf course, of this this property and you can see all the way across it to the other side and you can stand up on, on the on the high side and see across the other direction and when you're playing it i'm imagining you'll you'll think eventually i'm going to go 
over there. I don't know when or how long it's going to take me, but I know I see golf up there and I'm going to get there. And then you're up there and you look across and you say, eventually we're going to get over there. And it's, it creates this amount of expectation and, and desire. And you, and it's, you feel like compelled as part of this journey because you can see so much of the property. It's not, it's a different type of golf than when you go to abandoned trails and you, you see the hole that you're on, but you don't, and you don't know where you're going to go next. Cause everything is, you're turning constantly, you're going up, you're going down. And every time you turn a corner, it's a new look. This is exciting in a different way because you, you have this sense of anticipation because you know, it's going to come. You just don't know how you're going to get there. But I really love that essence. And I think this goes back James to what you're talking about, the simplicity you know, and, and the essence of, of this form of golf that you grew up playing where it's it's not a an explosion of drama. It's not a theatrical release. It's, it's not a superhero movie. It's, it's about th- just playing golf, connecting to the land, walking the golf course, and then you can see what's coming next. And there's something really pure and essential about presenting golf in that format. Well, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. It's uh, But again, it's back to... If, if, if we're trying to do a version of North Berwick or Royal Dornock or St. Andrews or those types of courses, that's what you're going to wind up with. It's, it's, it's the commons out there where people out there just crashing around playing golf uh, with their friends and the dogs are running around and the sheep are bleeding. That's what you're going to have. Um, if you're trying to do Pine Valley and every hole or Shadow Creek, every hole is its own little Gem, well, it's a totally different exercise. This is a totally different goal, and it takes you in a totally different direction. Yeah. But again, it's like, what's your favorite color? I mean, the, the red sweater is just as good as the blue sweater. They're just very different. Yeah, and we all, we all want all of it. We want a different experience every time you go play golf. You want, you know, you have your, your course, but when you travel, you want to experience something differently. And But what you're, what you're proposing here and what you're building, as you explained, it does have quite an appeal to people. I mean, the, the response to how you're cultivating the membership and, and getting financing has been very positive. Yeah. Well, again, we're very lucky that we are in a, in a, I mean, there's 10 million people within two, two and a half hours of us. So we don't need to appeal to everybody. We don't need to get everybody on board. We need to get one in a hundred to be in remotely interested in what we're doing. And, that self-referees, because then let's say you take 10 people and nine of them say, oh, this is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. Well, the 10th person, because it's so dumb and so different, is going to say, I love it. I love that it's so different. I love you not trying to pretend to be something else. I love you not trying to be all things to all people. You're not going to have all this stuff out there. It's just as simple as you can get it. And if you can get that one person out of 10 or 50 or 100, again, we're just lucky that we're in a, in a spot where the world, I mean, the, the, the adage, build it and they will come, build it and they're already coming. We're, we're nestled up to this international bonanza of you know, food and wine and lifestyle, um, San Francisco, the Bay Area. I mean, there's so many people who have a passion for the outdoors, a little bit of time and, and resources to participate in, in these kinds of things. Um, so we're very lucky. Um, I'm not sure it would work in, in, in other places or it wouldn't necessarily work somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And will there be a public component to this as well, where people can come up on certain days or times to play the course? Oh, Derek, we are trying so hard. <clears throat> people ask, well, how much play are you going to have? And I think the short answer is uh, enough to make the caddy program viable. 
if that means the members come out three times a week and they just tie up the golf course, well, then that's what we'll do. If the members come less and uh, they can send unaccompanied guests, um, we'd love to do that. If, if you, it's the, again, it's back to the old, nothing, nothing we do, unless nothing I do, Derek is particularly original. I just try to watch what works well other places. Uh, all this, the British courses, if you actually took the time to write a letter and you know, whether it's Muirfield or one of those fancy places working, if you actually took the time, made an effort to try and get on, you could figure out a way to get on. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll, we'll have a similar version of that. I, I've pitched to the guys, why don't we have a ballot? Why don't we have two tea times every day where you can put your name in a hat the night before and you might be down in Calistoga and St. Helena or in San Francisco and you wake up in the morning and it's like, yeah, we, we're in get in the car and you come up and you play. Why, why, why wouldn't we have a version of that? With, again, with, a, with, the, with the understanding that there is a, there's a club that is basically sort of the steward of the land and the, the curator of this institution. Um, but we want to share it with those who are prepared to make an effort to come up and play. Yes, I love it. It's, we could use more of that model in the United States. You know, right? Golf has been so divided between exclusive exclusivity, private clubs, and then golf for everybody else. And there's very little crossover between the two. You know, you have nice resort courses, but they can be expensive and hard to get to. And so exclusionary in that way as well. And um, it's just the, the public-private model in the UK has always seemed so much more attractive and inviting and helps helps players get to experience great golf and the more great golf people get to experience the the higher their taste level goes and i think it propels itself to creating more exceptional golf rather than ordinary golf and more want more want to go see more places like that yeah i think the challenge is it's 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 hard to do well it's when you do it well it looks like well yeah anybody could figure that out but it's it's actually pretty hard to do well we we we're we're really thinking through how this is going to work, and we're, again, we're lucky. We we can start off just with member play and bring some guests out, see how it goes. Um, but then, and then we can again, if we were in some remote location somewhere where you just you just you don't have the the people who will come and play, then that you that's that's what you have. You have to have the members come out and bring their own game. In our case, I do think. I mean, so many people come through here. I mean, it's just unbelievable from all over the world. They come through here and just over the hill, if you're down in Napa, it's, oh, yeah, just up over the hill there. We call a buddy and see if we can get on. And I think there's a way to, there's a way to do it. Mm-hmm. And again, we have this great luxury of being able to ease into it and, and feel our way through it as opposed to having to make decisions about what to do before we know how it's all going to play out. Hey, uh, James, if, if you were to have written a script of, of your life as it evolved from uh, Copenhagen to spending time with three of the people you talked about in the beginning, Gil Hans being the first guy you met, going to Cornell, uh, having Chinese food at 1130 at night in, uh, in Brora, uh, up, uh, up where you could see Santa Claus if you look hard enough. That's how far north you are. Did you ever think that your dream coming to, uh, to Northern California, uh, is this the end of that dream? It's a journey, Jimmy. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, <clears throat> it's a tough question, Jim. Jeez, sorry, <laughs> but you know, sorry. it's but it's a good, it's a good question, and um, 
I think again, as you get older, uh, you just if if you could just try to stay open to what might happen, and and um, you know, it's it's incredible. It's incredible that it's actually happening. Uh, some of the things that are most incredible are things you would never really, you, you just can't really um, predict those. One of the things I get the most joy out of is seeing other people buying into your idea and then you get to see it through their eyes and their experiences and then, oh, wouldn't it be cool if we did this or we can also do that and, and here's what, what I'm going to do. That to me is so rewarding when, again, it's not limited to what I can imagine. It's not limited to what I can do. Agreed. You put it out there and then let's see where others who you enjoy spending time with, others whose opinions you value, right. uh, what they make of it. And then as a group, it grows beyond what you can imagine. I think, and then that to me is sort of how I feel about the broader question you had about, well, how about this whole journey and all the experiences? Just try and be in the moment. And it sounds so corny when you say it, but I mean, try and be in the moment, try to have some fun, try not to overcook it, try not to do too many things, keep it simple. Bill, I mean, Bill's always trying to get rid of stuff. You know, just, can you take this paper? I don't really need it. Can you, I mean, I, I, I really need half a sandwich. I mean, just keep it simple. My point being is that people don't understand that, and, and maybe they do, and, and, and they're all their walks of life. You are on a special piece of property, working with special people, having this idea of simple and keeping it simple, and the synergy of the golf club and, and the members that are coming there are all going to have that same feeling. You want this to go on forever. You don't ever want it to end. And, and even though that journey has been 30 years, you wish you could go for another 30 years of this same concept, keeping it simple, doing those things that you love, being around the people. Derek, I can't freaking tell you how hard it is to get to that position and to be in the position that Coor and Crenshaw, James Duncan, and all the talented guys that are helping him up there in Northern California. You just want it to last forever. I guess that's what I wanted to know, James. Do you it's, want it to last forever? It is so funny you say that because we have a little, you know, on the one hand, we have to sort of push this thing forward. I mean, it's not going to happen by itself. We have to sort of be fairly sort of uh, rigorous in just sort of project management, making sure the bills get paid. You know, did we did we email pg back to make sure we can get a power drop in three? I mean, it's just stuff like that you have to do. <laughs> on the other hand, at the bottom of our list, there's a line item that says, you know, keep keep the honeymoon going. And to keep that sense of adventure, that sense of simplicity, that sense of just, it's just a bunch of people out crashing around a field with some dogs and some sheep. Let's not forget that. We, we all know the places that we've worked on where it was so cool when they were doing construction or they were in growing, they had a little trailer over there they operated out of. And if you can just keep that mindset, yes, you may need something a little more functional, some more amenities, but try not to overcook it, I, I really think. And again, try to just keep the honeymoon going. It's hard, hard to do, to, Derek. Hard to do. do. <laughs> but, when, but when you're there, where he's at now, where Kuhn Crenshaw and the, and the talented group he's put together up there, 
When you're there right now, you don't want them to end. You don't want them to end. No. Right. And you've got the little lake to jump in at the end of the day. That's it's right. 90, 90 degrees. You can go cool off up on the mountain. Exactly. A zip line down to the clubhouse. <laughs> I might edit this so we end with this section. This is a, a beautiful segment and a great way to end. I do want to do, since this is an architecture podcast, before I let you go, James, if you have a few more minutes, I wanted to ask you about um, another golf course that you were involved in, if you don't mind. Sure. We spent a lot of time talking about you working with Bill Core and all these great properties and how you met uh, Tom and Jim and Gail early on, and that really informed you. And you definitely connected to this certain um, uh, era of golf course architecture that has really transformed the industry and working with nature and keeping it simple. And you also uh, went across the ocean to Africa and worked in Morocco on a Robert Trent Jones golf course that was designed in 1970, um, this Royal... Uh, Dar el Salaam, and you renovated that golf course. That must have been an entirely different experience for you. And I'm really curious to, to hear you explain what you learned about um, that's that's a completely different style of golf and construction and an environment to work in. And, and what did you take away from that? And what did you learn about Trent Jones? No, that's that's a great question, Derek, and something that's very uh, near and dear to me. Um, Morocco has almost become sort of a second, second home or, you know, I, I just love going over there. I love the people. Um, I have developed some very close friendships. Um, it's just, it's just a special place. Um, and then the, the Dar Salaam, the, the history there again was they had this, this is sort of their flagship uh, in, in, in Rabat in the capital city, uh, this magnificent complex, the three golf courses and the red course was the main course. Uh, designed as you say by Robert Trent Jones, and uh, I mean just a just a fantastic design. The whole the land plan, the way the whole thing was put together, the time during which they did it, you know, with the king's uh, blessing and encouragement. I mean, they could just build this thing, and they had you know, hundreds of people out there working on it. Uh, built it during a fairly turbulent time in, in Moroccan history, so. In some ways, it was this grand adventure, um, this incredible piece of sort of civic architecture, if you will, in the capital city in a country that loves golf. Uh, the, the current king is not a big golfer, but the prince, Prince Moulay Rashid, is is very, very keen golfer. And he's the chairman of the Moroccan Golf Federation. So, so yeah, there are some pieces there that reminded me a little bit of what I love about golf history and how it really was. I mean, you can take the RNA or so these clubs that were stewards of this land and they, you know, the kings and playing kings and noblemen playing with the bootmakers and the blacksmiths. And so there's an element of that in Morocco with the caddy program. They have this fantastic caddy program that has, it's like a little ecosystem of coffees and sandwiches and cigarettes and all this, this whole little village that happens at Dar es Salaam. So I was instantly smitten uh, by the place, the history, the, 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 the culture, um, even the sort of the, the royal patronage and how that allows you to set up direction and say, well, this may be where the trends are here or this year or what this magazine is putting out. But if the royal direction is we're going in over here, well, that's a pretty simple thing to follow. And you really felt like you could, you could sink your teeth into something that had purpose and meaning uh, for the long term. So the goal was to, you know, it was a very, very difficult golf course. The goal was to keep it a very, very difficult golf course, but with some more uh, flexibility in terms of how you could set up uh, for, for tournaments. Uh, so that's how we 
set about renovating uh, the red course. Uh, it was no excuses. We're not trying to make it where, oh, you know, the pros are going to be happy. No, the pros are going to find it very, very difficult. And and that was the the charge, and that was our our, our decision. Well, not mine, but it was the, the the federation's decision and the prince's decision. Let's let's go in this direction. And I loved it. I loved that again. It was so clear what our objectives were, and I loved learning someone else's way of or, or studying someone else's way of building things. There's so much fashion in golf course architecture. Oh, this is a cool bunker, and that's not a cool bunker. Or you shouldn't use that piece of equipment, or you or you should use this piece of equipment. There are so many different things that are interesting, and if you're just willing to again just step back, look at what they actually did, try to figure out how they did it. There were some bunkers I would never in a million years have dreamt of building the bunkers the way they did. There are some behind the third green, for example, there's a little cluster up there that's just gorgeous. I wouldn't have been able to figure out how to do that. But they did back in the 60s, late 60s, with big bulldozers. And, and, and I just, back to the learning experience, if we learned nothing else, we learned that there is just a whole spectrum of architecture, design styles that may not be in vogue right now or may not be exactly what sort of the, 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 the influencers would say is cool today. But it's really cool if you're just willing to, again, just be be open to, to looking at it with fresh eyes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we just try to not mess it up and, um, and try to preserve the, the, the essence of the place. It was, it was a great experience. And that goes back to, to Derek. My question could be simply the difference between James Duncan working on a golf course, uh, restoring Somerset Hills in Minnesota, uh, a Rainer design, what he takes from that and applies to new golf course design or what he's learned in Morocco from Robert Trent Jones and applies that to that design. Is it applicable? Do you never use it again? Do you use it all the time? And that's the things that I debate uh, restoring golf courses that I get to work on. When do I get to use this again? Do I ever use it? Or is it it's place and time as he talked about the red course, is it, that place, that time, and it should be kept in, in all its totality. Yeah, it's you'd ask me. It's funny, Jim, because you, you'd ask me um, about in, a, in an email. I think about you know what kind of projects do I get the most um, enjoyment out of, and I, I've thought about it. And um, if if several. And people you're working with can get excited about those goals. I'm in. I'm goal may be don't change anything. The goal might be take two trees down or plant two trees. The goal might be blow it up and start over. But if you can get excited about the goals and you feel like you're in a group of people you want to spend time with and work with, and, and let's not kid ourselves. I mean, we spend so much time on these things. We travel around the world. At least you should do it with some people you enjoy hanging out with. If you can get to that, Let's go. And then I will see the, the, the difference between a place like Somerset, which is a great, talk about a simple little club where the members just love the place. Let's not go in there and just change it just for the sake of changing it. You know, let's try to do the opposite. Let's just really think about what the goal should be and then maybe little by little uh, make some change or maybe make a lot of change, but at least think about what we're doing. Uh, whereas in other cases, it's much more of a, the, the 
timing may be different or the whoever's behind it is excited about moving quickly and let's get it done. That's just a, a different set of goals. And I find them equally. And I think, Derek, for me, uh, the same as, as James said, they're all interesting, interesting in their own way. It's the people that are attached to them. It's their locations. It's their place in history. And that's all you're trying to do is be a part of their place in history. And at Brambles, Curran Crenshaw, James Duncan are creating another place in that part of history. Same as in Morocco, same as in Minnesota, same as wherever we go. It's place in history and how important it is and the people you work for and adjusting and adapting to all of those locations. That's why I never want to retire. Uh, maybe James is never going to retire either. I don't know. I, I will just add positive energy. I want to hang out with people with positive energy. I, I, I just don't want to be part of things where it's all negative and, you know, we, that to me is such a big deal where you, you look at a challenge and it's an opportunity as opposed to it's a challenge and, oh, well, this is, this is not going to be any good. Or, I just, <laughs> you know, I just, life's too short for that. Just <laughs> positive, positive thoughts. I agree. I agree, Derek. I agree. Well, that's a good place to end this and leave it at that. Positive thoughts. I have a lot of positive thoughts right now after our discussion and finally getting to sit down with the two of you and, and talk about brambles and some other things. And I'm in a pretty good place right now. Well, thank you both for, for, um, for doing this. This is great fun. Luckily, we didn't go down the, the cheeseburger route and, uh, and all of the other things away from the golf course because uh, James Duncan and I, uh, we got a thousand stories and, and they're applicable, but they're not. But it's all about the learning curve and spending time with positive people, as he just said. And that's the synergy that I get from what I do, being around positive people. Because negative people, it just, it's just a bummer. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. It's, it's, like, it's exactly like deciding you're going to build a walkable golf course. It's a decision point, and then that takes you towards a certain type of property. Once you decide positive thoughts and positive people, there's like a whole field that just gets illuminated. <laughs> we won't name names. We'll just Thank you. <laughs> read between the lines. No, no, exactly. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, guys. All right, guys. Thank you so much. Jim, I'm, I'm in a really happy place. That was a fun conversation. And just, I think one of the things that's really entertaining and gratifying for me, and I hope our listeners too, is listening to you and James talk to each other. You know each other so well, and you've known each other for so long. And I feel like there there's a connection between you two, and it, it's grounded in the fact that you've had this shared journey, not side by side, but being uh, young designers coming in at the same time, you're a little older and a little more experienced, but... I think you just listening to you communicate with each other and talk about the journeys you've each had. You're you're at that stage in your career where you do kind of step back, I think, and and you don't do it all the time, probably. But you you have these moments, especially when you're talking to a, a, an old colleague, where you can reflect back on on where you've come and what you've done, and ho hopefully all of the the great things you've you've created and added to the game of golf. I mean, there was a little strain of nostalgia that went through that that I think that made that such a, a really enjoyable and fun conversation for both you and, and me and James and hopefully everyone who's listening as well. 
Derek, you, 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 you hit it right on the head. It, the perfect, the perfect strike. It was nostalgia. It was remembering when it was telling stories about each other. It was watching each of our journeys progress in the way that they did. And, you know, part of our growing up, part of our learning curves uh, are taking what we experienced individually, bouncing them off each other and seeing we, where each one of us has gone. And yes, just a little bit older than, than, than Mr. James Duncan, but totally respectful from where he came and, and where he is. And Derek, when people say, you know, uh, I didn't get that chance or, or, you know, I'm not that lucky. James Duncan made his, made his choices. And James Duncan went down the road that he was going to go down. And James Duncan met the people he needed to meet. And I am so, so impressed with a person who came. He, he said, he's in Denmark, Derek. Mm-hmm. He's in Denmark. And he says, I'm going to go to the United States of America and I'm going to learn golf course architecture. And this is what I'm going to do. And isn't that about perfect when you say anybody could do it if they want? And watching him do it was unbelievable. And yes, the nostalgia was part of that. Yeah. And I mean, that touches on something that, that we spoke about. And I know it's important to you. You know, first of all, you know, he could, it would have been very interesting to see if James would have landed with, you know, a, a different group of people when he got here. He could have, he could have uh, gone to work for Joe Lee or Arthur Hills or uh, Ken Killian or something and, and been exposed to an entirely different way to design golf courses. I have a feeling he would have eventually gotten to where he is and gotten into the type of golf and design and landscapes that he's attracted to, which he's been working with since the 90s. But and and the, the reason I say that is because it was evident from our conversation that that he is he is a, a a thoughtful, caring, good person. He's a nice person. He's he's great to work with. And it's I know this is important to you. You talk about it all the time. It's the people that you work with that make the project better. They make it what it is. But also leads you to this point where you know you can share this experience and then. 25 years later, you can look back on it and have such positive feelings about what you've done and, and where you've came from. And, and Derek, that's the important part of my journey, uh, of a lot of people's journeys and, and whatever they choose to do. And one of the things that caught my attention, and, and I jotted it down as, as he was talking about it, he said, and I'm not quoting him exactly, but paraphrasing, he said, you have to be respectful of other people's contributions. And if you don't mind, Derek, I'd like to read this quote from Ellerson McKenzie when he talks about that in the future of golf architecture. Do you mind? I don't. I do not. And I quote Dr. Ellerson McKenzie. He should not be unduly influenced by hostile criticism, but should give the most sympathetic consideration to the criticism of a constructive nature. Not infrequently, a long handicapped man makes a brilliant suggestion, which can often be utilized in a modified form, end quote. Alistair McKenzie talks about this eons ago, about using the resources of people around you, 
Don't be afraid of a little criticism, but listen and 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 maybe somebody uh, that you would never think could give you a contribution to the design does. And James was very respectful of the people that were on his site, and you you know Derek hanging around me and talking on the on the podcast that people are important. Thank you for pointing that out, and you could tell that they were important to Mr. James Duncan. Yeah, and he's embodying that that spirit of, of contribution. When we were out at Brambles, you know, we saw some of the work that's in the ground already. There's they still have a long way to go, but there's some really neat small feature shapings that was done by that were done by some of the people that he has on site. Zach Vardy, who you've worked with quite a bit, yes. Ryan Farrow, yes, um, yes. Benjamin Warren was there for a while. <laughs> Dave Axland has been there. A lot of people have been there. It's it's the same old, you know, it's the it's the old crew and some some old blood and some new blood and and you know. They obviously felt the freedom and the empowerment to go out and create some some unique forms. There's a, a little berm that's you know maybe waist high that runs across the front of I think it's the tenth hole you know just off the tee and it's it's like a little almost like a stone wall with a gate in it that you know you have to drive over. It's an easy shot over it, but that's that wasn't there. It was created. So they're 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 doing some neat things and you know James and and Bill and Ben are open to to great ideas and however they come and when you I think. And you would know this better than me. I'm just, you know, speculating. But but when you're done with a golf course project and you've built this course, it's it, how gratifying must it be to look back and, and be able to to know that it's the contributions of everybody that led to it. It's not the architect, you know, with the wizard hat on in his in his study his studio, you know, drafting this on a computer on a table, and then it's like, bam, there's the golf course. It's done. Golf courses aren't built like that. that. It's 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 a it's a group effort, and and the more respect you have for the people who are contributing to it. I think the better the product can be. And Alistair McKenzie said it years ago. There's no I, (laughs) there's no I in that sentence. There's no I in that golf course. It's we. And when James Duncan talks about respecting the other people's contributions, it's the we in the golf course architecture, golf course construction. It's the family that they've created. It's, it's, it's the Zach Vardy's, the Ryan Farrow's, the Benjamin, uh, the Dave Axlands. Uh, they all show up and they give their contributions. And Coor and Crenshaw respect them and uh, appreciate the contributions. And that's how this 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 living architectural dream comes out of the ground. And, and when you when you talk to James Duncan about it, there is a happy place in that, Derek and and. And there's that, that, that feeling that you're connecting the land and the golf to the community. And that's what they're supposed to be about. And I could have talked to James forever. And, and sometimes, you know, I get the, the little giggles going about <laughs> the old stories that we shared, whether it's in Brora, Scotland or North Berwick. And, and it's just part of that growing and learning and, and watching and seeing what other people are doing. Do you see why I seek out these people, Derek? They're just, you You want to be around them. That's just what you want to do. Yeah, I think you can feel that in the in the product as well. You know, it's, yeah. a, it's sort of like a, a, <laughs> a, a mystical thing to say, but, but it, you know, there is an evidence of, of passion that comes out in the project. If the passion goes in, the passion comes out. And it's not, let's get this done as quickly as you can so we can get to the next one. That's right. Yeah. 
I'm sure I'm, I'm guessing a lot of times nobody knows if there is going to be a next one or where it's going to be. So yeah, let's linger here and, and put everything we've got into think, this. Just think about when they were building uh, 300 golf courses a year. Ugh. It was like, let's, let's get her done so we could get to the next one. And, and maybe that's what was so important to what's happening now is that when you're involved with these, it's that, it's that, let's take our time. Let's, let's let it evolve. And Pete Dye told me that thousands and thousands of years ago. Let's play with it for a while, Derek. Let's, let's see how it turns out. We'll massage it here. We'll massage it there. And you can do that when there's not 300 golf courses going on a year. And, and that's pretty good. That's a pretty good uh, track record of what those guys do. Yeah. Let's just take our time. I mean, imagine if, if this golf course would have been built by somebody else in 1995, what the end product would be. What would, be, what would they do to that particular gentle piece of land? Would it have any chance of, of being the brambles that we're going to see in a, a year or two when, it, when it's ready to play? Um, you mean those little two-foot rivulets that we saw? Yeah, yes. <laughs> would anybody oh. even notice those? Yeah. God. Yeah. Would anybody even be on site to to see those? Because they're probably not on a topo map. So they're just, you know, yeah. Bring out the tractors, as we talked about in the opening. Bring out the the D sixes and just push it away. Who, who left these marks in the fairway? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Get rid of them. Yes. Eliminate. One thing I wanted to I. I, I I wanted to ask James this, but we were kind of getting short on time. I knew he had a busy day ahead of him. But I wanted to ask him about uh, Dar es Salaam in Morocco and his experience working with uh, a Robert Trent Jones design. And specifically, it was on my mind after watching the U.S. Open at Torrey Pines. And, that you know, th- it, it kind of got nauseating to to listen to everybody just trash Torrey Pines on social media and, and on the Internet and whatever. You know, I, I'm not a huge fan of the golf course either, but um, – it's a fine course and a lot of people like it. But one of the f- criticisms that I do think is is fair if you wanted to look at it is is the bunker placement and how so many fairways just have bunker left, bunker right. And with they're not even staggered or offset or anything. And then when I when you look at a course that that Reese Jones's father built, Robert Trent Jones in Dar es Salaam, the bunker pattern there is really interesting. That you you don't see the bracket bunkers, and if they are, they're they're staggered. So one's farther down the fairway, one's in. A lot of times, only one side of the fairway is bunkered. There's a lot of variety in the green bunkering, and I, and I thought about that. And there's the two courses have nothing to do with each other at all, except for uh, you know maybe a common familial lineage about how who built them, uh, but. I wanted to ask James this, what he learned about bunker placement, because that'll be a big issue at, at Brambles. They're only going to, you know, have a handful of bunkers. I forget how many he said, you know, like like 15 to 20 bunkers on the whole golf course or something like that. So it's going to be very tasteful and minimal. But what did he, did he learn anything from seeing Trent Jones's approach to bunkering at a course like that, that he's really, you wouldn't associate with James Duncan and his his career and how he came up through golf and, and he's not here to answer that, but I will ask you that question. Do you have any, when you're thinking about bunkering a golf course, the, the, the courses you've worked on in the past and some of the new projects that you're working on now, do you, do you have any guiding principles for bunkering or, or what do you look for when you're thinking how many bunkers and where to place them along the course of a, a tee to green routing? Great question. Great question. What I've learned from, from years and years of studying golden age designs and restoring them, Derek, is that 
there was no such a thing or thought about bracketing, uh, the term you used, uh, bracketing, that uh, they were uh, left and right of the fairway in the landing area. The golf courses weren't built in the golden age for just one particular player. There was bunkers that were 180 yards off the tee. And mind you, the distance of the ball flying back then was 180 to 220. And then it went from 220 to 240. So there, you know, the ball was going farther, but there wasn't just one bunker set up for one particular player, what you call bracketing. And you were right about Tory Pines and, and that, you know, for, for whatever criticism it gets, uh, was it the best use of the land? You know, we'll let, we'll let people discuss that forever. I asked John Rahm if he thought that that golf course architecture, um, ask uh, Tiger Woods if he thought the golf course architecture, ask anybody who's won at Torrey Pines what they thought about the golf course architecture. We'll let other people to decide that. But for the study of golden age design and the study of placement of bunkers, I've always said to committees and, 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 and owners of properties, you know, we don't want to build bunkers for just one set of players. We want to build bunkers for multiple levels of players. We don't discriminate. We, we want to make sure that a bunker, there's a bunker out there for everyone. And when you bracket uh, uh, bunkers so that they're in a landing area, 280 to 310 out, you're really, you know, you're, you're, you're setting up a golf course for one level of player, in, so to speak. But when I learned about the careful use of bunkers and not a lot of them, place them in the line of play, make people play over them or close to them so that there is an advantage for doing that. And you don't need 130 bunkers to do that. One bunker in the fairway or one mound in a fairway or one feature on the green, you don't need nine bunkers around the green. Simplicity, the presentation, the effective use of, you don't need thousands and thousands of cubic feet of sand poured on a golf course. Effective, useful for all levels of players in the line of flight, close to the position A that you want to be. That's what I learned in Golden Age Design. And you only need, Derek, you only need 15 or 20 bunkers, 20 to 30 bunkers to make the golf course present itself in a strategic way. You know, do you need 70 and 80 and 90 bunkers? You know, that wouldn't be my presentation. And as you saw the land and the way they're using it at Brambles, they don't need that presentation. They don't need a thousand bunkers. But you can see, Derek, when you play the Lynx lands of Scotland and Ireland, that sand was underneath the turf. And if the sand eroded and the wind eroded and the rain eroded, a bunker appeared. So the perception that there are more bunkers on Linksland's golf courses, maybe there are because the sand's sitting underneath there waiting for the first wind to erode it. But when you're strategically placing them on land like Augusta, like uh, Muirfield, like the Midland inland courses where, you know, you're building them on clay or, or heavy soils and you're going to import sand, be judicious when you use them, uh, put them in the line of play 
make sure that, that they, they maximize their usage and not just on the peripheral and not on the parallel. I hope that answers your question. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's really well put, especially about, you know, having a bunker out there for everyone. Now, not everyone really wants that bunker, so keep that in mind. They'd much prefer not to have a bunker for them. But, but that's what makes golf interesting, and that's why we play. You know, so many bunkers are, are built, you know, the majority of bunkers are built as something to stay out of. When you see a bunker off the tee or around a green, your thought is, I don't want to go in that. But there's no thinking behind it. The only thinking is stay away from it. But a, a well-placed bunker sh- could be exactly where you want to hit your golf ball, where you instinctively want to hit your golf ball. And if a bunker is there, your thought isn't only just stay out of it. It's like, okay, what do I have to do to stay out of it? It's not just hit a shot left of it. It's hit a shot left of it, short of it, right of it, over it. You know, now you're engaged with the golf course and the architecture. And that's what really good strategic bunkering does. And your point about what Mr. Jones did senior in Morocco and that whatever James has learned from that application. Uh, did he use it at Brambles? Will he use it on the next golf course he does? Uh, where does those applications fall? I do that all the time. <clears throat> and Seth Rayner McDonald designs that I restore. And Tillinghast designs that I restore. And Donald Ross and, and Charles Allison. The golf courses I restore, I always look at the application of, of, the, of the presentation, how they're used, Even in today's technology where bombers are hitting at 310 and 320, uh, how were they used back then uh, to to divert the ball or or to make you play in a different direction? And, you know, it's really when I – it's sad, Derek. It's really sad for me. But when I look at magazines or I look at aerial photographs of modern designs, I could pick out the 280, the 290, and the 310 bunkers. Yeah. I just – it's just – that's what they are there for. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's 290. That's 310. That's, you know, that bracketing and, 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 and the designs that I prefer, uh, there's no bracketing and there's layering. As you said, hit it short, hit it left, hit it right, hit it long, and not just stay out of that bracketing circle of, of bunkers. Yeah, there's no formula to it. No there's formula. no formula. And I you said know, that about St. Andrews in our on our podcast uh, months ago, yeah. that there's no formula, there's no mathematical layout of, of St. Andrews. It's just there, and bunkers eroded, and, and sand appeared, and there's no mathematical presentation. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've said that a lot before, too, is just yeah. the idea of just, like, throwing a, a handful of three, four bunkers out there as if they were, whatever, marbles or rocks, and just that's where you build them, and... How are you going to get around them? That your your job as a golfer is to figure it out. It could change from day to day. But we get so we get so wrapped up in 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 the media and in photography and social media and on how bunkers look, like the yeah. edges and and the frilliness and the the wispy nature and all that. And and Jeez. less less conversation. I hear less conversation about where the bunkers are placed their yeah. orientation or their scale, how large or small are they? They're, you know, those are all the things that, that uh, are part of the bunkering conversation. And no question. it's what I was thinking about when I was, we were talking to James. No question. They're, they're all a part of that. The scale, the presentation, the layering, the, the, uh, one of the, one of the neat things that I saw uh, recently was uh, a bunker, uh, what I call a deception bunker, that was layered on the horizon. So it looked like it was touching the green and it was 
oh, probably 90, 100 yards away from the green. Deception bunker. I think we have talked about that before. Mm -hmm. Those are rarely used because they have to be used in the line of flight. And when you put them in the line of flight, people could go in them. (laughs) You You don't want people to go in them. That's the fun of golf, navigating hazards, steering yourself around the game. And as James said, they're going to use a few bunkers at Brambles, and they're going to use the land to its fullest, so they don't need a lot of that. Natural, natural property, subtlety, simplicity, the essence of getting back to the essence of golf, something simple, something that invokes a, a just a, a the land itself with very little, very little accoutrement to it. You know, he mentioned Garden City, Woking, courses like that. Those are James Duncan's words, and and that's what I think we can expect from Brambles when it opens. It's neat. It's and, a very interesting place. And when you when you couple that routing that I talked about with with James that that you talked about, it, it just has that perfect flow. It's just out there, and 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 then it kind of rolls up into the hills. And then it comes back out of the hills. And, and you said it perfectly. You get to see where you're going. You just don't know when you're going to get there. Yep. Yep. That is one of the funnest things I learned in Lynx Golf is I see that hole. I just don't know when I'm going to get there. Yeah. I see those guys up on that ridge. I see those people way over there. I can only see their heads. What Are they playing golf here? Yeah, that's going to be great. And the Lynx lands like Cruden Bay where the dunes are so big that you don't see anybody else. Right. Valley Bunyan. You know, I, I, I discount those. But but the, the subtleness uh, and of North Berwick and watching people come out away from the clubhouse and then heading back into the city and seeing, you know, for the first time, wow, there's some people playing. I'm going to get to that hole. That's what you're going to get at Brambles. And that's what I was trying to, to get a better feel from James Duncan how long it took Coor and Crenshaw to get that routing. So it was just the perfect flow. And God, they make it look so easy. Don't they? It just, they make it look so easy. There's a lot of uh, innate ability there in, uh, in Bill Coors' head. And, and then you assemble the cast to help him create that. Uh, to help him cre- help the people create Coor and Crenshaw's ideas, getting the people respecting their 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 uh, contributions. That's why these freaking golf courses look so good. That's why they're so fun to play because it's they just set up the team of people and the routings and the ideas. As as James Duncan said, the, it's not a script. But it's an idea, and you and everybody gets in the flow of the idea, and the contributions come from right and left, and and people are editing, and and then and then you're done, and and you open it up, and you wait for people to to criticize or or, or, or applaud, and uh, that's the fun of it. Yeah, well, we'll see. Um, Brambles, I think, is an interesting place, and it's a great property. Obviously, a great team of people behind it. So. Um, it's definitely going to be uh, a project that I want to get back and see again and can't wait to play it. Oh, me, uh, same, same for me. And, and I'm so happy for James Duncan. And, and as you said, Ryan Farrell and, and Zach Vardy and Benjamin and all the guys, Dave Axon that are helping. Um, we saw them uh, uh, all at the end of the day, hot day, 
Gonna go swimming. Yep. Heading up to the pool. Take, taking <laughs> a dip. To the, pool. To the cold water. <laughs> Well, that was a good one, Jim. Thanks to James Duncan for joining us. Um, really good conversation. Thank you. I always have Thank one more question for one more question for you, Jim. Do you, do you yep. still order your cheeseburgers that way? Everything no. on the side. <laughs> sadly, sadly, anybody who uh, the one other person that listens to the podcast, Derek. <laughs> Besides me, will laugh at that because I still do it today. I still, I still want that meal to be like I'm at home, you know, because um, I spend so much time away from the home. Uh, if you ask anybody that travels with me, uh, it's, it takes about an hour for me to order dinner and it's a, it's a three ring circus while I'm doing it. All right. The lesson of this podcast, if nothing else is get your order in before Jim's. <laughs> you got to get your order in because the cook and the waitress and everybody else involved is going to be about fed up with this one guy's <laughs> order. <laughs> Get it in quick. Jim, good talking to you, man. Great to see you. <laughs> Thank you, Derek. Ciao. That's great. Thank you.